VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, May the 12th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and Fonce King is sitting in the producer's chair today. So you'll be speaking with Fonce when you give us a shout to get in the queue. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, yesterday, man, it was actually hot. Here in the city, anyway. I don't know how high the temperature got. Maybe in and around 18 degrees. So you'll see some sun-kissed cheeks out there, uh, I would imagine, today. You know, we we kind of ease into using sunscreen, or many people do. And just one more friendly heads up. Uh, yesterday afternoon on Elizabeth Avenue, I almost, well, there was almost a really serious collision between a motorcycle and a half-ton. I don't know who would have been at fault, but all I know it was really, really close. So... You know, again, like we get used to our driving habits when we enter into the winter season. Same thing for the summer season because now the bikes are back on the road. So just be very wary and mindful that they're going to be out there. Sometimes you might not see the bike coming, and whether it is you're approaching intersections or what have you. And also remember that the motorcycle can stop so much quicker than a passenger vehicle. So give them some room when traveling from behind. Anyway, I saw that one yesterday. My heart was in my throat. Okay, some Good news to start on the sports front. So we all know that it's a real loss for Brett Gallant to move off to Alberta to play for Team Botcher, and that leaves a gaping hole. He's a tremendous player, and the team really leaned on Gallant. Well, <laughs> Guju and the boys made out like bandits. They have filled the second spot with E.J. Herndon. I don't know if you know who E.J. Herndon is. Well, when Guju won the Olympic gold medal back in 2006, well, E.J. Herndon, as a member of Team Jacobs, won the Olympic gold medal in 2014. He's also a Briar champion, one of the finest seconds in the country. He's going to be joining Team Guju. So way to plug a hole with one of the finest replacements they could have found. So bravo and good luck to the boys. All right, Growlers. Ooh, dropped Game 4 last night, a 6-5 decision to the Reading Royals. Game 4s are always critically important. They were down 6-3, battled back to make a game of it. But down 3-1 in this series. Uh, game 5 tonight. Needs some local support. Obviously in the barn at the Mary Brown Center. Puck drop at 7. Lahong rolled back to take out Reading. Well, now, Reading was one of the very best teams in the league all season. So they were always going to have their hands full. But there you go. Okay. I had mentioned one day last week that the Tricom U13 AAA Thunder had won the Atlantic Canadian Championships. Hockey, right? So that's great stuff. You know, winning a AAA event at the Atlantic level is an absolutely massive accomplishment. I was sent a blog post last night further elaborating on how good this team was. <laughs> so it goes on to say, The Tricom Under-13 AAA Thunder are the best U-13 AAA team in Newfoundland and Labrador history. <laughs> Great stuff. I know a few guys from a 1982 team might beg to differ, but we're probably wrong. So get a load of this. They only trailed in one game. All season. They only lost one game this season. They went 22 games without a regulation loss. They absolutely pounded their opponents. Get a load of this. During the regular season this year, they scored 112 goals. Only gave up 11. They beat teams on an average by 8 goals a night. So we know it's tough age to learn how to win and how to lose, but you really have to appreciate how great this team was. So they go on to the Provincials. They scored, well, they went 5-0, and scored 41 goals, only gave up two. 
Only gave up two goals. Then they go on to the Atlantics. They average over six goals per game. So put it all together, so says the blog poster here. 22 games played, over 175 goals for. That is unbelievable. They only gave up 14 goals. Tricom scored more goals than they gave up shots on their own net. <laughs> so there's some pretty otherworldly stats for that particular hockey team, so bravo to them. And it just reminds me of one great peewee hockey team in history, Steve Stamkos. Steve Stamkos and John Tavares were on the same peewee hockey team one time. They only lost one game all year. Tavares missed a penalty shot, and Stamkos ribs him about it to this day. How about that? All right, a couple of quickies here. Today, in 2004, Randy Johnson, fireballer, lefty, at 40 years of age, playing for Arizona, the Diamondbacks, became the oldest pitcher in Major League history to throw a perfect game. Nobody made it to base. Randy Johnson at 40, perfect game. And today, born in New York City in 1937, the caustic comedian George Carlin. Carlin would have a field day with what's going on in the world these days. So he was dubbed the Dean of Counterculture Comedians. So he had a very frank look at psychology, religion, a variety of other taboo subjects, maybe called dark comedy, the way he talked about politics and what he saw out there inside American and North American and world cultures. He would have an absolute field day, is which I think I already said, with what's going on in the world today. And of course, for many, maybe best known for his seven words you can't say on TV and you can't say them on radio either. Okay, let's keep going. There has been a lot of concerned folks, and most of them connecting with me via email, and they're welcome to call the program this morning, or any day, is about the fact that the Archdiocese of St. John's has to sell off its assets to pay the victims at Mount Cashel, or of Mount Cashel. And right, rightfully so. Now, the cemeteries have been protected, given a compromise reached between both sides. Good thing. Then people will think, can you just imagine if the Basilica was sold, you know, and was no longer operating as a faith-based center? Well, that's possibly not going to happen. There is a joint bid being put forward. Uh, the partners are the Basilica Heritage Foundation, St. Bonaventure's College, and the St. Bon's Forum Corporation. They're trying to buy the, the school, the forum, and the basilica. So the basilica would remain a faith, heritage, and cultural center, so they say. St. Bon's continue to operate as a private school and preserve the St. Uh, Bon's hockey rink, which, of course, oldest rink, I think the oldest rink in North America. Okay, so that's a good thing. It begs more questions, though. When the denominational school system went by the wayside, and the province, for all intents and purposes, expropriated the schools that were owned by the Roman Catholic Church, no compensation was offered, there's a lot of worry and wonder about what's going to become of the schools. Now, yes, there will be other groups who will try to protect their parish, whether it be partial COVID, Holy Rosary, or wherever. But what becomes of the schools? I think that's a question that I don't think anybody's really answered to this point. And yes, the other churches and parish halls and properties are a concern for the congregants. I completely understand. But the province has got a potential problem on its hand. I think it's as many as 30 schools. So there's a lot to be yet understood on that front. What do you think? Let's talk about it. All right. And so inside of K-12, you know me. I'm always interested in talking about more and more about what's going on in the schools. And we know that they put a focus on coding. And some post-secondary type of coding available for high school students. Not in every school in the country, in the province, pardon me, but it's out there. And now we find out, uh, based on some work that the CBC has done, to get some additional information about what actually was understood and some of the worries inside the province's Meditech system. And we all know that it was eventually hacked. Where did I find this? Oh, here we go. 
All right. So Eastern Health had uh, commissioned a report. It was delivered in September of 2020, about a year before the cyber attack was understood. So there were some Israeli cyber experts confirmed numerous vulnerabilities, security concerns, and compliance issues. So we wondered aloud whether or not there was much of an understanding about where we might be vulnerable inside that particular IT system. The big question will be, and there's no real clear answers coming, is exactly what was done with the warnings. What kind of work was done to enhance security inside the healthcare IT system? So it's not to say or imply that they took it and dismissed it or ignored it or just shrugged their shoulders, but when a year later, as many as 200,000 people's information has been compromised all the way back to the mid-90s, the question remains. So we don't really know a whole lot about what went on. We don't know if there was a demand for ransom. We don't know if it was paid. We don't know to the extent of the hack. We don't know the status of the rebuild. We know we're in and around $14 million or $16 million has been spent since the system was hijacked. But that is, I think, of note, is that there was warnings in hand. And now there may have been some work done. They talk about building a cyber center of excellence. Okay, and that's a long-term view. But, of course, when people say... It's not a matter of if you get hacked, it's when you get hacked. So it would be nice to examine that a little bit more deeper, and maybe we can get a representative from Eastern Health, Mr. Johnson, who's speaking on behalf of the Regional Health Authority, to give us a better, clearer understanding of exactly what's going on there. But you can only hope that any warnings were dealt with as quickly as possible, because there's no real simple silver bullet here. And they go on to say that we might not have the level of competence in staffing, experts in the field, to manage this particular system. Uh-oh. Also, very quickly, you know, there's lots of talk about def uh, defense spending these days, especially amongst NATO countries. And, you know, the obligation to spend 2% of GDP. And this year, with the increased spending, we're still only around 1.5% here in, in Canada. The key word for me is defense. We're not, it doesn't say, you know, purchasing military armaments and tanks and fighter jets and missiles and whatever else is involved. It's defense. Should we not consider shoring up our cyber systems, our online systems, as a matter of defending the country? Because think about it. What kind of jeopardy are we in to have to defend the homeland with military? As opposed to, what happens if the hack, like happened in the United States, the colonial pipeline? You know, water distribution systems, the electric grid. So I don't know why the world doesn't consider spending money on that front as a matter of national security concerns, as actual defense spending, you want to take it on? We're happy to do it here this morning. All right, talk about the two separate tales being told on the same day on the very similar issues. So EcoJustice, they've launched a lawsuit against the federal government to overturn the decision regarding Beta Nord. Okay, so they've got a variety of partners, including the Sierra Club Canada Foundation. We know that Equinor says that if they go ahead and sanction the project, first of all, it could be as early as 2028. Uh, I think I understand their argument in that the impact assessment was done under a past regime of parameters, not the current form as it stands today, the Impact, a impact Assessment Agency of Canada. The project was released with some 137 conditions. EcoJustice and their partners say that there wasn't consideration given to downstream emissions associated with the oil. 
You know, we can talk about the low carbon intensity, which is absolutely true, and this is a world-class field when it comes to the, the 137 mitigation conditions that are in place and the carbon intensity of the oil to be produced there. We know it only represents a 15 to 18% of overall life cycle emissions. Also becomes a very difficult measure because there's not all uses of oil are created equal either. They also go on to mention that it might not see the security of jobs and royalties, you know, based on historical outcomes in other oil fields. I, I don't know how that gets factored in necessarily, and that's kind of crystal ball stuff. The minister responsible, Stephen Gibo, you know, stood with the past assessment that said there would not be any significant adverse environmental effects, notably because of the mitigation measures. So that lawsuit will be launched. Uh, actually, Equinor is named, as is the federal government, as is the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada. And on the same day, because remember, when Minister Gibo needed additional time to deal with Beta Nord, and then there was a, a delay in the CNLOPB's release of land sales, their parcels, for exploration licenses. And yesterday, at the same time, they did indeed invite oil companies to bid on these licenses. 38 parcels, totaling over 100,000 square kilometers off the east coast of the province. They needed more time, so now it's been done. We know the last go-around, it was woeful. No bids, even though it was a very harsh part of the, off the Labrador coast and maybe not as attractive as some other parcels, especially out in the Flemish Pass, the in and around Beta Nord. So 38 parcels out there. And we'll see if any companies come knocking. Because it's not that long ago, eight new players came into the industry, record sales for individual parcels, record sales for the annual, uh, the annual sales at the CNOPB. It's kind of waned, but talk about two different approaches on very similar matters. All right. So when the government hires consultants, when the government strikes task, force, task forces, there's a bit of an eye roll. Some of them are absolutely critically important. For instance, I do think the health accord is a massively important body of work being done, and we quickly anticipate the release of the blueprint to implement their 57 recommendations. But there's been an agreement between the Medical Association and the province to strike a task force to talk about surgical backlogs, and the million dollars we spent at McKinsey & Co., and the $5 million spent with Rothschild, and no real clear understanding about what anybody has said about any of the issues facing the economic issues in Newfoundland and Labrador. And now, another task force. But this one might not be the eye roller that some of the others may indeed be. And this is one that was recommended by Justice LeBlanc at the, in the Muscrat Falls Inquiry Report, is to strike a panel of experts to look at what the actual implications are of 2041 and the expiration of the contract at Churchill Falls. People view 2041 as the panacea. All of a sudden, all our troubles are over. Now, the Premier says this is not a commercial investigation or evaluation. It may lead to commercial options down the road. This is an important piece of work to be done. You know, we have to ensure that the, quote, maximum long-term benefits are achieved by this province, and everybody understands the contract and the shortcomings of a lack of an escalator clause, you know, all the way back to 1969, maybe some oversight. It's not pr maybe all our fault. It was probably a very rough contractual negotiation at the time, but we failed many, many times, of course, to try to reopen the contract, and we really do need to know what the technical implications are, the commercial considerations, maybe some eventual further negotiations. People will immediately say, well, we're just going to sell the farm again. And Hydro-Quebec will still remain our masters after 2041. Those types of references are 
Pretty common, I would think. But we really do need to know what it actually means. I don't know. I really don't know what that means. So will it be some additional collaboration with Hydro-Quebec, whether that be at the Upper Churchill, whether it be with Gull Island, whether it be associated with the, uh, the fictional Atlantic Loop? But we do have to understand what's going on. You know, even in 2041, Quebec has been buying the power for about two bucks a megawatt. That's just about free. And that's not obviously been in our best interest. They've made off like absolute bandits. And so this panel is going to be struck. They're not being paid beyond an honorarium. They'll meet about four times. And I would imagine it'll take lots of uh, work to actually have a firm understanding. The, the list of names are impressive. Uh, backgrounds of law, hydroelectric projects, economics. The chair is Carl Smith, of course, the former CFO at Fortis Incorporated. So I think the work is pretty important. It's going to be the report will be... Well, uh, the panel will be concluded by September. When the report is going to be delivered, I don't know. But the enormity of the Upper Churchill is also quite staggering. We talk about Muskrat, right? 846 megawatts, I think it is. And Gull Island, about 2,225. The Upper Churchill, 5,428 megawatts. I mean, it's absolutely massive. So I think that panel is going to do important work because I think if you ask 10 different people on the street what the implications are of the expiration of the contract in 2041, you'd get five donos, you'd get five different opinions, and none of them are probably accurate. So I think that's got to be well understood. So, And you have to do it quickly. I mean, it's almost uh, it's a couple of decades, well, 19 years, until it expires. But that happens very, very quickly. And there's going to need to be some heavy preparation done for when 2041 arrives. But if you want to talk about it, we can absolutely do it. All right, so the price of gas and the price of diesel, they did indeed go down yesterday. Furnace oil went down a little bit. Uh, propane as a heating source gone up slightly. But still, it's a net up the week. You know, up 11 cents, down 3 cents, still means we're up 8 cents this particular calendar week. But those issues, of course, we can talk about. Same way we can talk about uh, the PUB and the more transparency that's going to require with the amendment to the Petroleum Production Act. And that's a good piece of work. But, of course, as someone rightfully pointed out, understanding the recipe doesn't make it taste any better. <laughs> so, yes, the massive question will be whether or not regulated prices on gasoline is doing what we need it to do in our collective best interest to protect our pocketbook at all costs. All right, how are we doing out there, Fonts? And I know there's a protest uh, scheduled in St. Mary's today to talk about that processing plant we've been talking about. There's a couple of different moving parts to get an application eventually approved by the minister responsible, the minister of fisheries. First, it goes through the processing licensing board, and the chair is Reg Anstey. And we're going to be joined by Mr. Anstey around 9.30 to talk about what he knows about the project or the proposal and what are some of the key issues that the panel looks at whether or not they recommend the green light and the approval of a license or not. So Mr. Anstey coming up, and of course we can talk about whatever you want to talk about. We're on Twitter, we're VOCM Open Line, follow us there. Her email address is openlinefvocm.com. Let's get a tune on the go. Lots of talk, freedom, right? Lost all these freedoms, or so many people say. But you know what constitutes not being free? Not being allowed to dance. In 1984, Kenny Loggs at number eight on the charts with Footloose. When we come back, let's talk, don't go away.
weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin the, this morning on line number one. Say good morning to the Executive Director of the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities. That's Nancy Reed. Good morning, Nancy. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Great to be here this morning. Happy to have you on. Thanks so much. Um, Patty, I really wanted to take a few minutes this morning just to tell your listeners about a scholarship that we have available uh, for certain high school students this year. Um, the scholarship is something that we offer every year around this time of the year, and it's sponsored by Synovus Energy. Um, we have a scholarship that is available. Uh, actually, we have two scholarships. Each of them are $1,250, and they are available to uh, successful you know, to applicants who um, are graduating high school in this year. Uh, they must be an individual who identify as a person with disabilities, self-identify in that way, and uh, be a Canadian uh, or, or be enrolling in a Canadian post-secondary institution in the fall. Um, those are the basic entry, uh, in, you know, application qualifications. Um, because it's being sponsored by Sonova's Energy, uh, and we are the individual must be entering a post-secondary field that would be related to oil and gas, and that's a pretty broad range of areas. We would consider um, everything from business administration, office administration, uh, earth sciences, health, occupational safety, technical trades. Um, engineering, and a bunch of other fields in that way. So it's, it's really a broad uh, area that persons could be uh, enrolling into, but it's really, really great scholarship. And every year uh, for the past years, we've been able to offer two of those scholarships, so we're doing that again this year. The deadline for applications is actually the 3rd of June, so it's quickly approaching. If you can imagine, we're that close to June, but it is getting really quick. And um, the application of, um, process or the application itself is available at our website. So that's really easy. It's codnl.ca, codnl.ca. And all of the information uh, is available there for folks if they're interested. I'm sure you already said it, but how many scholarships are available? There are two. Okay. uh, And they're each valued at $1,250. Helpful when you're trying to chip away at tuition, books, and, well, depending on where you're going to go to university, of course. Of course. Uh, And so that's good, and hopefully you'll get lots of applications. I do know that in the past... You know, speak with Craig Reed and others about, you mm-hmm. know, a poster campaign that they were just making general uh, requests for folks who are listening to this program or following along on social media to put forward a poster about, I think it's seeing the ability in disability or disability-related matters or wh- what they think about when they talk or hear about disabilities. I was, I told Craig I'd help put, in, put those uh, contests in the schools, and it never came to pass. COVID hit and all the rest, of, of course. So... You know, things like that, and I, I know your mandate is broad, but mm-hmm. even when we talk about, you know, just not, so not identifying as a, someone with a disability, but to understand what being disabled means. And it, it's a, there's a variety of things. So if we talk to children, as opposed to those awkward stares because someone has braces on their legs or whatever other type of disability may be apparent or sometimes not apparent, things like that, what do we even do in schools on this front? Uh, I guess within our schools, it's um, 
sometimes less accessible to us in that way. We are uh, oftentimes presenting to individual classes. We have opportunities. Uh, last week, for instance, my colleague Trevor Freeborn uh, did a presentation to an occupational health and safety uh, class in one of our schools. And so he went there and spoke, or you know, virtually, but spoke to them around uh, opportunities and disability and um, safety and, you know, it put it into an occupational health and safety lens. We really talked about how persons with disabilities uh, are enabled and things that we do, things that we do in the environment and in our workplaces to enable access and availability for persons with disabilities. Uh, we also, I'm presenting uh, next week at a, a space where we're uh, working with students who are transitioning from the, uh, I guess, from the high school system to the adult systems. So I'm doing a presentation there and working with people in that way. So we do it in small spaces like that. But, Patty, what we're doing really right now is entering into a, um, a multimedia campaign that we're going to be pushing out in the coming months. Right now we're at the research uh, stage. And over the next week or so, I'm going to be coming back to you guys, I'm sure, uh, with, with a bunch of information around a survey that we're developing to enable folks to really respond. Um, and, and hopefully that that research will give us the information we need to really develop a multimedia campaign that will really address an understanding or, or provide an understanding of persons with disabilities, some of the barriers that are faced, the you know actual lives of people with disabilities, and try to remove some of the perceptions and misunderstanding of persons with disabilities in our world today. Yeah, you know, I, it always strikes me that in school, we just expect people to understand the differences amongst us, whether it be the country you come from, the color of your skin, your religious leanings, your disability, if you're on the autism spectrum, as opposed to if we talk about it, then some of the awkward nature just goes away. You know, we start to understand that we are all different in different types of ways. Some are absolutely massive, some not so much. So yeah. when we have, you know, a captive audience, like in a classroom, these types of conversations go a long way, not only to making more social cohesion, but to it's actually part of learning. And so uh, that's why I was trying to help Craig get it in the schools, just for the t to start the conversation versus have to be explaining why John or Jane is not the same as you. And so yeah. th that was the rationale behind that. I really appreciate the time, Nancy, and you're more than welcome to come back after you've done this piece of research and help spread the word here on the program anytime. Thank you so much, Patty. Let me just also say that when we talk about disabilities, we certainly do mean from a cross-disability perspective, so it's every piece. Sure. And some 25% of our population actually self-identify as persons with disabilities. So every one of us in our real world every day are interacting with persons with disabilities. And so we're already doing it. Uh, we just got to figure out how to do it better. And uh, and so that when we see people who may not appear to be exactly like ourselves, really use that inclusion lens because we are all individuals. Sure. And I, th I think I probably said that very clumsily, yes. but no, I, no. I, I think, I think uh, yes. people know what I mean. And thought hopefully they did Absolutely. anyway. Absolutely, and, and I'm just agreeing with you, Patty. I mean, oh, it's, totally it's, get it. It's a real place. Thank uh, you so good much. to have you on, Nancy. Stay in touch. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Bye bye, it's Nancy Reed, Executive Director of the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities (NL). And just quickly, as I was reminded by Cam, and probably should have thrown this in there to the 20, 24 to one conversation, the ownership arrangement as it stands. CFLCO, the Churchill Falls Labrador Corporation, which is a subsidiary of NL Hydro. We own 65.8% of Churchill Falls, the Upper Churchill. 34.2% is owned by Hydro-Quebec. Big issue uh, associated with that, though, is Quebec, Hydro-Quebec owns the transmission lines. So it, it's just one of the additional complexities to actually what goes on up there. So I'm glad I threw that out there, because uh, Cam threw it out there, because I should have included it in my comments off the top. Let's go ahead and take a break. We've been talking about the proposal to reopen a fish plant, a processing plant out in St. Mary's, and... 
the community have rallied. There's a protest today. We've spoken to various mayors in the region, talked about what they see as the importance of getting that facility up and running. Reg Anstey, he's the chair of the Fish Processing Licensing Board, is up after this. Don't go away. Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the chair of the Fish Processing Licensing Board. That's Reg Anstey. Good morning, Reg. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well, sir. Thanks for asking. How about you? No, not bad at all. But we appreciate your time. We've had calls from various mayors that concerned citizens in St. Mary's and surrounding area about an application to reopen that fish plant out there. And amazingly, no fish plant operating in St. Mary's Bay, which is extraordinary. Reg, what can you tell us about the plant? Well, maybe, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Patty, maybe uh, as a start, I can just deal with the process of how the board operates. Sure. Uh, and... Uh, the board's mandate is uh, is varied, and one of the things the board has to have a look at is the whole question of regional balance, which is uh, trying to make sure that the uh, processing capacity is not centered in a few major, major, big, big plants, and the areas where the resources landed are totally ignored. So <clears throat> it's a fairly significant and difficult responsibility. Uh, the board has a few... Uh, fences to climb before we issue a license. First of all, the quota has to be able to sustain the additional processing capacity. Uh, secondly, uh, there has to be uh, the needs of the harvesters have to be taken into account. Thirdly, <clears throat> the board is mandated to uh, make sure that the whole issue of corporate concentration is part of uh, our consideration. So on crab specifically, uh, if crab has gone through a difficult period uh, in the last decade. However, about four years ago, three, four years ago, crabs started to show signs of recovery. Uh, <clears throat> last year, there was a substantial increase in the crab quota, and in particular in 3PS, which is where St. Mary's is. Mm -hmm. the, uh, uh, the board had a look at it last year. We had applications for St. Mary's and uh, a couple of other sites. Uh, the board has a, an obligation, obligation to make sure we don't uh, issue licenses that provide overcapacity, which impacts on people who are now in the industry. So the board had a long, hard look at all this last year, uh, decided that they wanted to see one extra year of science. Now, we met with the scientists last year. Uh, the quota was um, looking good. The recruitment, which is, you know, crab that'll get big enough to enter the commercial fishery look good and the pre-recruitment look good. So <clears throat> the decision made uh, by the board was to bump the applications ahead of year, meet with the scientists, develop a protocol as to how we uh, increase the processing capacity in the industry. We met with the major players in the industry, the union, the association of seafood producers. 
and uh, developed uh, a protocol as to how we move forward. So uh, the science on crab is done in the winter, January, February, and usually available in March to players. So <clears throat> towards the end of March, we uh, had access to the science. Uh, it looked good. Uh, stock looked healthy. Uh, recruitment looked good. Pre-recruitment looked good. So the board made the decision that it was, it was time to deal with the applications. Uh, those meetings were set for the week prior to Easter. Uh, we started with uh, our second meeting with the sciences to make sure we had a really good handle on the resource, uh, you know, on the recruitment and uh, where we were and so on. The uh, quotas were out, uh, substantial increase in quotas. I think in the last two years, the quotas have gone up 46 million pounds. There's now 110 million pounds of crab, which is <clears throat> among the highest level of our crab quotas uh, going back through our history. So in that environment, uh, the board held its meetings. Uh, we finished on the Thursday before Good Friday. And it's important for people to understand that the board's role uh, is to have a look at this stuff uh, free from political interference, which used to be the old system. You know, a lot, a lot of times the granting of licenses was quite chaotic and dependent on the amount of influence from politicians, uh, the size of the demonstrations and busloads of people that came put pressure on the minister. So in 2006, when this was put together, the board, it was to remove the, the granting of licenses from that political heat and, uh, and put at arm's length from government. So our role is to make recommendations, send them to the minister, and then he has the final decision. Now, you know, in the history of the board, I think the minister has, I think, almost 100% followed the recommendations of the board. So the board finished its work on uh, that Thursday, and always, as it, as it always does, the following week, the recommendations were put together and sent to the minister. So that's where it rests. The minister's decision is final. Now, once the minister makes his decision, his decisions are published, and so are the board's recommendations, because what we do is always subject to uh, uh, be made available to the public. So the minutes of our meeting are published once they're adopted and finalized, and our recommendations are always uh, published as well as soon as the minister um, you know, decides what it is he's going to do. He's either going to accept them, reject them, or modify them. So that's where it stands. Uh, <clears throat> the board's work is, is done and uh, has been for, uh, for some time, actually. So it's now in the hands of the minister, Patty. Okay, and I, I had a base understanding of the process. Let's chip away at some of the issues that you consider. So the regional, uh, the regional issue. With no plants operating in the region, doesn't that satisfy the regional concept? Uh, you know, there's no question that that's, that was part of our consideration, Patty. As I said, I can't say what our decisions were. Uh, that's all confidential until the minister decides, you know, where he's headed. Uh, but that's certainly, that was an argument that was made by people involved obviously with the application there was certainly a consideration of the boards okay and you also go on to talk about concentration how does this decision jibe with the concentration that was considered when royal greenland was given a, a, a recommendation from your plan? <clears throat> well you know the uh, royal greenland was a, a purchase of a big plant by a big plant the uh, uh, when we developed the protocol for the issuance of new crab licenses last year one of the uh, and that's that's for public viewing as well 
one of the uh, one of the issues and the uh, one of the I guess points made in the uh, CRAB protocol for issuing licenses is that the licenses would not go to anyone who currently held CRAB licenses, and it was to make sure that there was distribution. Uh, uh, in, you know that new buyers, new players. Uh, would come into the industry if, in fact, new licenses are issued. So we dealt with that last year. Okay. I was, you know, referring to concentration, whether it's a big operation, buying a big operation. We did indeed talk concentration as it pertains to foreign ownership mm-hmm. at the last time we did talk. Okay. So how does this factor in? Because, you you know, I, I get the fact that you can't jeopardize businesses that are already open, but this particular proponent has access to boats and quotas already in place and up to £4 million, so we're told. So how does that factor into how you decide the <clears> issue of jeopardizing other business when this person who wants to op- reopen the plant with no additional investment required from any outside sources, including the government, how do you evaluate that as a component to whether or not it's a good idea to reopen? Because if they've got the boats and the quotas <clears> up to £4 million, what does that mean for decision-making? Well, it's an important factor, obviously, Penny. You know, we have to look at regional distribution, and we have to look at the uh, economics of the proposal, whether it makes any sense, um, the uh, regional uh, impact impact of putting a major plant into a particular area. So all those are major factors uh, in the board's final decision, you know, and they've all been taken into account when the board made its decision. So that's really all I can say about that. Those are part of our mandate, the the panel, uh, the board, and there are five of us, uh, had a real hard look at all that. The company uh, got to have their say in front of the board. Uh, uh, So did the mayor and a few other people that the company brought in. So, you know, the board was familiar with all those facts. They're all uh, before the board when we made our decision. So, you know, our decision was based on uh, consideration of all of that regional uh, uh, processing, um, adjacency to the resource, economic impact, um, corporate concentration. All of those things were taken into account and the health of the stock when the board made its recommendations to the minister. When you talk about the science and to bump it one more year down the road, and you mentioned the fact that the quota is up, the total allowable catch is up uh, some 46% over two years, an average of 30% this year. What does the science need to look like for an approval, say, for instance? Do you have a number in mind that another additional increase of 10% or what the recruitment or pre-recruitment looks like? Give us an idea what kind of science you need and what kind of numbers you need to see. Well, I don't think there's an exact number, Patty. It's a judgment call always. And uh, I think when when the board has a look at uh, any stock and they can see that there's uh, either, uh, you know, a need for extra processing based on uh, uh, landings in a particular area or overall health of a stock, I think the board will hopefully always make the right decision. So, you know, the only thing I can say to people, I know people are anxious out there in St. Mary's Bay, is that, the board was aware of all of those facts and, uh, you know, was very comfortable. It had before it all it needed to make uh, a decision. So, you know, that's been done. Uh, the board uh, tried as, uh, to expedite the decision as quickly as possible. We never had the science until the latter part of March, and uh, the board uh, was finished with, with everything by, uh, you know, just after Easter. So... Uh, you know, all of that has been part and parcel of our decision. 
And it's difficult to answer your question without giving some kind of a hint as to how the board ruled, and I'm not prepared to do that. Okay. Uh, uh, you did mention, you know, changing the way it used to be because you'd have busloads of people protesting in front of the Confederation building, direct pressure on the minister, and so this independent or quasi-independent board has alleviated some of that. But what sort of lobbying pressure do you face, whether it be from the Association of Seafood Producers itself or some of the big players therein, whether it be Royal Greenland or anyone else? What sort of pressures do you face outside of simply the application and the hearings that you that you chair? Well, you know, when the, the process is, when someone wants to make an application, they have to advertise in the paper for two weeks. And people have a right then to file letters of support or, you know, objection, whatever it is that whatever side of the equation they're on. Uh, that's taken into account by the board. Uh, you know, but aside from that, there's there's no real pressure. The, the, they don't have a right to come before the board other than the proponent. And they, we always give them the right to come and make their case uh, if, they're, if they're interested, and they usually are. The difference between the board and the uh, political side of it, the way it used to be, is that the board is not elected. You know, we have a uh, we're appointed. We're appointed for a term. We have a job to do, and we get it done. The problem the other way, and it was quite chaotic back in the the 90s. The uh, problem the other way is that po- politicians have to pay some attention to uh, to the voters and you know to the political pressure of what happens at the next election. Uh, <clears throat> since the board has been created, I guess whatever the decisions are, they can always point it back to the board and say, well, you know, there is a an arm's length board that have a, had a good hard look at this and they've made their decision and we support it. That's generally been the view of, and the way it's been handled for the most part uh, since the board was put together, which was 2006. But, you know, you, you never quite know. So the, uh, as I said, all I can say to people is we've, we've looked at all those issues. We've taken into account everything you could possibly imagine. We've done due, due diligence, I think, six ways to Sunday. And we've made our recommendations, not just on this one, but there were, in fact, five applications for CRAB altogether. So, you know, our decisions are made and they're in. I appreciate making time for this show this morning, Reg. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. Take, take care. care. Reg Johnson right, is the chair on. of the Fish Processing Licensing Board. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go. Line two, Bruno, you're on the air. Uh, Good morning, Patty. Morning. I wanted to talk to you about uh, the Bay de Nord protest that uh, happened yesterday. Um, It was sponsored by the Sierra Club, my uh, former employer, and the Council of Canadians, an organization that I value and I think all Canadians uh, should not just because they gave me an award for my work in and around the Sydney tar ponds, but because they have the long vision of Canada and what it means to be Canadian. Uh, so it, uh, it was very interesting to see the uh, makeup of the protesters. Uh, it was almost overwhelmingly young people, uh, with an exception of uh, an elder, uh, and. Uh, It is their world, their planet, that we're going to be leaving behind. 
As I mentioned in our last conversation, Stephen Gilbo, who started out as an environmentalist when he was a young man, climbed a tree to stop uh, people from cutting it down. Later, climbed the CN Tower and hung a banner saying, Stop Climate Change. Of course, that's all changed now that he's federal minister and on the West Coast. He's approved the uh, go-ahead of the Trans Mountain Pipeline uh, that will triple the amount of oil hitting the uh, waterline on the West Coast. And uh, Bay de Nord here on the East Coast in international waters uh, with the uh, legal regime not really sorted out, but never mind that, more oil on the West Coast, more oil on the East Coast, and let's try to pretend that we're going to meet our reduction targets by 2030. There's a disconnect there, and it's these young people and our aged elders who understand the implications that short-term economic profits and jobs are not the solution if the cost is we're feeding our grandchildren to our children. That makes absolutely no sense, but what it is we are in the process of doing. We will have no future. The planet is burning up. They've already started out for this year on the West Coast. Fires, extreme droughts. And still, we want to keep developing Bay de Nord here, Trans Mountain on the West Coast, and try to pretend that it doesn't mean the end of the civilization as we know it. Do you think that's a sensible and sane approach to our future, Patty? I'm just uh, hearing your opinion here this morning, Bruno. We've had okay. the same conversation uh, several times. I don't know. I, I, I'm a little confused how they factor in some of the eco-justice comments that they made yesterday as it pertains to the lawsuit. You know, for instance, the jobs. The jobs won't be what people think they might be. I'm not sure what that has to do with an environmental issue. And, you know, whether or not there's going to be uh, an opportunity for that oil to be utilized in X number of years down the road, when, in fact, that's a business decision that Equinor will have to take on with their own evaluation. I'm not sure what that really means for an environmental concern. Uh, those two in particular, I, I think they're just, you know, well, I guess it's added value type of stuff as opposed to anything to do with the environment. But anyway. We've made an international commitment by 2030, and it's obvious that we're, <laughs> we're going to have a tough time meeting those targets when we don't have a plan to reduce. Sure. And we keep increasing the supply. And they also. In eight years. <clears throat> go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, they, go ahead. And they include, you know, that the minister didn't reasonably uh, include full life cycle emissions. And we know that uh, production is somewhere around 15, 18% of the life, uh, life cycle of emissions. But uh, my question would be, how can you actually firmly evaluate that life cycle issue? Because we can have a firm understanding of the production side, but the utilization and what the oil is actually used for, not all things are created equal. So I think that's, you know, kind of crystal ball kind of stuff. Maybe there could be ballpark estimations thrown in and included in that comment or thought or concern. But I don't even know how they evaluate the full life cycle because it depends on how you use it, right? I don't, I, I, I don't understand. Any, any uh, reputable fossil scientist can compute 
the amount of carbon contained in a barrel of oil. Yep. And uh, we know that where the carbon has to go with that oil is consumed. And how much of it is going to go up into the air? I don't understand. Uh, but in any case, we've got this disconnect, I think, between the youth that understand what's at stake and uh, our elders that's, that have the wisdom of the ages and the generations in between that are so wrapped up in their issues of the day, in paying for the SUV, for building a, a you know a, be- a bigger house or a bigger boat, uh, without any concern for the fact that, in fact, our grandchildren won't have a habitable planet if we keep it up. We've made commitments in the understanding of that, that we have to radically change, uh, and that the uh, places that refuse to do that get left behind in the dust, that uh, if they don't move to the new economy, if we're not building windmills on our offshore to replace Holyrood and uh, having a reliable backup that's not fossil fuels, that it'd be so easy to do and relatively inexpensive that, and that, that can be done in modular form, one piece at a time. Uh, but I guess in an era of huge mega projects, that doesn't look attractive to politicians who are wowed by big numbers and big projects and... Uh, big problems. Uh, You know, we're still uh, hearing more news all the time that the software at Muskrat Falls. Yeah, no, we're not going down that road as well here this morning, but uh, I appreciate the time, Bruno. Thanks for the call this morning. Hope you're well. Okay, but uh, you shouldn't really uh, put restrictions on what people can speak about. Well, no, because it's 10.02 and 47 seconds. And before we know it, we'll be uh, right into Soldier's Pond and all the other issues again. So we we had our beta-door discussion. I I gave you ample opportunity. Thank you. We haven't haven't talked for half the length of time that your previous caller did, and I think he's important and he should have been listened to. I'm just pointing out the difference. And so were you this morning. pointing out the difference. I interjected right. very, very little again this morning. I, I gave you your time, Bruno. We talked about it in order, and I appreciate your input and your call this morning. Thanks, All right, then, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Brian, you're on the air. Good morning. How are you, Patty? I'm doing okay, Brian. How about you? Pretty good. Patty, uh, either tonight or tomorrow night, we'll come to the end of the season for the growlers, you know. I think they represented the province very well. And I wish them the best of luck, but I, I think they're at the end of the season now. Um, the only thing that I worry about is that if you remember at the first of the season, now I'm not a big Growlers fan, but I remember at the first of the season, whatever was going on down at City Hall, the Growlers had to go with cap in hand to various ice drinks to see if they could get their games played. And they did. You know, Paddy, I think if I were uh, heads of Growlers, I'd leave. 
I think there's a lot of NAHA cities here in St. John's or here in Newfoundland, Cornerbrook, Grand Falls, and Gander, all need to have airports to close the airports to welcome the growlers. You wouldn't even have to change the name. But I think the way that this team was treated at the beginning of the season was very, very shabby. And I think they told the growlers that they weren't welcome in our city. It's too bad. But whoever, whatever was going on down at City Hall, I think, had given us a black eye. I think they should leave. Well, I don't think they're going anywhere just yet now. Mr. McDonald quite clearly said when all of this kerfuffle was ongoing that he was looking at his options. Now, they eventually got to play out in CBS, and uh, that partnership worked for, I think, it was six games. Uh, he's yeah. talked about building his own facility, and there's a couple of sites that have been evaluated where he might build his own rink. Because remember, he also put forward a massive proposal to the city and St. John Sports and Entertainment to take over operations at Mile One, to invest in Mile One, to expand the That's offerings right. at Mile One. So I don't know yeah. where it's going, but what what we don't really quite understand is exactly what the investigation into so-called harassment and bullying and the toxic yeah. workplace, all that stuff. So there's probably a lot more to be understood so that we can have a clear understanding of exactly what went on yeah. and you know finger points of blame and whether or not. Now, St. John's Sports and Entertainment have proven to be pretty difficult to deal with for everybody who's brought a hockey team to town. Everybody. you know, yeah. Whether it be Mr. Williams or Mr. Dobbin. And or Mr. McDonald now, and of course uh, Tony Kenny and his group with the Growlers are the Rogue basketball team. So there's something seriously not working. There is a bit of a restructuring going on at St. John Sports and Entertainment. Their most recent appointments to the board are top caliber people. So maybe they can figure out a way for a better relationship between the tenants and the board because yeah. right now it always seems quite abrasive. Anyway, the other point I want to make today. Now my conservative friends listen to me are gonna are gonna be surprised and I may choke when I'm saying this. Uh, I I looked at the uh, debate for the leadership of the conservatives last night. Now I don't have a whole lot of affection for politics or politicians, but you know I really enjoyed that debate. I thought it was well structured. I learned a lot. I you learned who these guys and, and ladies who their heroes are what their policies are, who they even like to have dinner with. And I was quite surprised that none of them said they'd like to have dinner with you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I watched a bit. I tried to watch a bit of the first one, which was an absolute gong show. It just was. Boy, oh, boy, they're cannibalizing themselves here right on the stage for all to see. Last night was a much better job done by the moderator. A friend of mine and, of course, veteran uh, political journalist Tom Clark, he was really That's quite right. good in trying to keep the interruptions and some of the yeah. shenanigans to a bare minimum. But there's still a lot of, uh, you know, just the the endless rhetoric of somehow they've convinced themselves and so many Canadians that the country's gone to hell in a handbasket. When oh, if we God. stand back and think about it, nobody, not really. You know, there's certainly some glaring gaps. And yes, we can talk about uh, vaccine mandates and government overreach and those types of things. But... You know, there's a vast difference when we talk about emotions, how the different candidates represent themselves, and the same thing when we talk about actual policy and how the the different candidates represent themselves. You know, the the front runner is really good on the emotional stuff, maybe not so much on the policy stuff. Like, and I, this is not just about conservatives or liberals or NDP or what have no. you, but things like, you know, 
taking away some powers at the Bank of Canada? There's a reason why the Bank of Canada is the monetary policy go-to and the government is the fiscal policy go-to because political intervention too heavily handed in the Bank of Canada seems like a terrible idea. And so does including some legal tender associated with cryptocurrency or Bitcoin or something. Like, I just don't get that. I really do not understand how that makes any sense. We talk about volatility. Well, man, volatility is apparently real in is abundantly uh, apparent inside of the world of cryptocurrency. Like some of those things, I just don't quite understand how that makes much in the way of sense. You know, especially if he says, uh, Mr. Polyev talks about, you know, biting into inflation with a, the volatility that is Bitcoin. Like, I'm, I don't know if that even makes any sense, but I know it gets a lot of cheers from some people who would be leaning towards supporting Mr. Polyev. Uh, Mr. Charest is, you know, if we're, if you criticize policy proposals, that's great. But the whole intellectually lazy, he's just a liberal. <laughs> it's just sort of a strange, strange take <laughs> on things. Like, I, I'm not quite sure how it's all going to play out. And, you know, endless shrieking about wokeism and cancel culture and what have you. Let's get down to brass tacks and talk about what actually is meaningful in the governmental controls as opposed to bellyaching about who's woke and pronouns and stuff. Like, what does that really have to do with anything? I'm not 100% sure. But anyway, uh, I'll give you the last word, Brian, before we take a break. Well, again, uh, best of luck to the growlers tonight. I think they're going to need it. Um, I thought last night was good debate. Um, and it's too bad that they didn't want to have dinner with you. I think you would have, I think you would have been, been able to talk to them better than anybody. Well, I, I'd be happy to take an invitation. And I appreciate your time this morning, Brian. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much, Patty. Welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, and if people would like to chime in on who they think is the person best suited to lead the Conservative Party of Canada, because I think even conservatives are looking and watching, they'll quite clearly say that there is a huge difference between the candidates. Generally, when we talk about party leadership, there's, you know, the people be divided on how they perform in the debates or some of their individual policy suggestions, and not a huge, huge gap between how they present themselves and what they think the party direction should be. But that's not the case here with this current leadership tussle. And I think there's about five or six of them that have, you know, had a kick at the tires, but there's a huge difference between the candidates for the most part. Especially, I I think, and I don't know what the polls say, but if we consider that Mr. Polyev and Mr. Charest are the two front runners at this time. That's not to dismiss Miss Lewis or Brown or Atchison or anybody else, but it looks like those two, it might be between them. There's a massive difference between the two. There simply is. And it's very apparent, and it's quite easy to see. So whether or not you support one or the other, well, that's up to you, right? It's a, f- it's a free country. But the whole continually banging on about freedom. So l- let me put this out there in the form of a question and get your reaction. If I'm told that I've lost all my freedoms, which I haven't, and I'm not allowed to say what I want and my freedom of expression is gone, which it's not, is it as simple as if a vaccine mandate, for instance, goes away, does that mean all of a sudden we're not China anymore? That we're not some sort of communist country anymore? And I think it's time for a rational conversation about the mandate. You know, whether it be for federal government employees and or for people's ability to get out on aircraft, I do think it's time for that discussion. Because like I've said before, The tale has been told. Unless they change the definition of what constitutes fully vaccinated, which at this moment in time is two shots in the primary series plus 14 days, unless that changes, then the concept of whether or not any mandates are going to encourage, force, 
coerce or whatever word you'd like to apply someone to get vaccinated who currently isn't, it's never going to happen. It's not. The vaccine conversation is done as it pertains to how many people are going to get it. So if now we've arrived as straight up we're just punishing people for not getting vaccinated, you know, government policy, I suppose, like everything else, has to have an intended outcome, a way to measure it, and an understanding when it's come to its natural end. And I think the mandate conversation, has we've arrived there. Actually, we've been there for a while. So if all of a sudden the mandate goes by the wayside for travel or employment, does that mean all of a sudden we're a free country again? Because I get a little bit caught up in, you know, if that's the endless pot banging is that all of a sudden we are not free. People have been convinced we're not, but the reality is the only thing I can see out there, you know, there's, uh, we can have a honest conversations about some of these things. You know, like Bill C-11 and regulating the Internet. Let's talk about that. Vaccine mandates and their requirement or lack thereof at this stage. Let's talk about that. But some of them, and unfortunately some of the politicians, just go absolutely way out of their way to amplify. You know, it's easy to say, well, uh, Justin Trudeau is a divisive politician. But just look at how some of the rhetoric is turned up to 11 and what we're actually getting out of that. As far as I can tell, not a lot. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back today, it's a good day to join us on the program. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, tell me some good news for starters. Uh, 273-5211 or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. The Workday Winds Down with Greg Smith in the Drive. Get up to speed on the day's events and current traffic, weather, and community updates each weekday afternoon on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number one. Caller, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? Great, you. Good, I'm just nervous. I don't know really how to talk. Um, Don't worry about it. Take your time. Um, I just wanted to talk about how I feel there are certain uh, doctors in, I don't know, maybe just say Newfoundland, for example, but for St. John's for me particularly, and I feel they are over-prescribing narcotics to certain patients, and I feel like it's a bigger problem than is ever talked about. Nobody ever talks about it, and I just figured I'd come on and talk a bit about it. Sure, and we've tried to broach this subject many, many times because, you know, let's say, for instance, the crisis associated with opioid overdoses. Some of those, uh, the initial addiction may indeed have started with the doctor's prescription pad. So it's part of the conversation, so it should be. There's been some controls put in place with double doctoring and, you know, an online uh, pharmaceutical record for one person or another, but we can only hope that there's not purposeful, willful overprescribing of these extremely potentially dangerous drugs yeah i have a friend who's addicted to i mean everything really and went to a doctor's office yesterday hoping to see the doctor because we were supposed to get this person some treatment get referred to a treatment facility the doctor didn't even see her just wrote her a notepad of all the prescriptions and then she went out and got all the prescriptions again and abused all the prescriptions and 
it really frustrates me because he didn't see the patient. He's just writing the notes and sending them on their way, no effort whatsoever. I don't know if it's because they are overbooked, they're stressed. I don't know what's going on with some of these doctors, but, you know, just here's your pad, prescription, go on, go get it filled. They don't do any blood work. They don't check the patients out or nothing. They don't come in for office visits. They'll either talk to them over the phone or pretty much it. And I think that's become a problem a lot lately, too, is a lot of things are being done over the phone, and they're not really assessing the patients properly, and that needs to be done more because I, I think people are taking more advantage of this scenario now because the doctor can just write the notepad and send it to the pharmacy. But as far as I'm concerned, you should still have to see a doctor every so often um, to get proper blood work done and the doctor to examine you and talk to you, but they don't really do that. It's like since the pandemic, things have changed, and I don't know if it's always been like that, but it seems to become more of a problem now than I think it's been in a long time. I think even the medical community talks about these particular issues, and it's not simply the overprescribing of an opioid, for instance. We've gone all the way back to even something as fundamental as antibiotics, and there's been this has been an issue certainly that's been broached on this show many, many times over the years that I've been in the chair, because you're right. You know, we not only overprescribe pharmaceuticals, we overprescribe all kinds of stuff, including some of the tests that may be unnecessary in this province. I think doctors have admitted that quite clearly. Um, you know, checks and balances have got to be part of this because, you know, we could talk about crisis, whatever a crisis might be for one person, lack of a doctor or climate, and yes, opioids. The number of people addicted, dying, and hospitalized because of opioids across the country is absolutely staggering. And we have some controls that we can utilize, including the medical community, doctors in particular. So I get where you're coming from. So my, I'll, leave, I'll leave it with this because I'm not really sure. But if it's true, and, you, and, and I feel that a doctor is abusing um, practices and stuff, and I feel they're overprescribing, do I, as an individual, uh, a taxpayer, have a right to report that doctor? Is there a place that people can call to make these reports? Like, that's what I've been trying to find, but I can't seem to find any answers as about what do you complain about when these things are going on? Because I think if people have a place that they can call and speak to somebody and they can look into it, I mean, I think you hear a lot more people complaining, but it's just who do you talk to about it? Is this Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association? Like, who do you talk to with something like this, right? You talk to the College of Physicians and Surgeons. They are the, the, the place where you can make a complaint about the behavior of a doctor, whether it's professionalism or otherwise. So medical skills, knowledge, training, update. I mean, they'll take all the complaints. Uh, you can call them. You can simply email them. I have both contacts if you'd like to, draw, to jot them down. Yeah, sure, I could uh, do that. Yeah, it's called the College's Professional Conduct Coordinator, and you can call that person at 726. 726-8546. 826-8546, so 726-8546. That's okay. right, or you can register it via email and simply complaints. Complaints. At? At? CPSNL. CPSNL. Yeah, .ca. That's the okay. Yeah, like I said, I didn't know what to talk about in terms of how to explain this, but I just say it's it's more of a problem of overprescribing and there's problems. But you've already pretty much stated it's not just Newfoundland; it's all over the country where this thing is a an epidemic of people dying in hospital over uh, medications and stuff.
Oh, uh, certainly when we're talking about opioids, and it might not I mean some of these drugs are absolutely bought on the street, but that's where some people are just unwilling to have harm reduction conversations because a safe injection site, some people view it as enabling. No, what we're trying to do is ensure that they don't have a, a hepatitis riddled uh, syringe and needle, so that consequently we can keep the people out of hospital with hepatitis. So, same thing we're talking about uh, the control, the regulation, the decriminalizing illicit drugs has worked elsewhere, but we're not ready for that conversation here because there's still people mad that marijuana, cannabis products have been uh, legalized. So there's room for this conversation absolutely on this show, and I'm glad you called, and you can make your complaint known by one of those uh, those mediums, say a phone call or an email. Okay, perfect. And I hope there's more people out there that are in a similar situation as me and know of it, and don't be afraid to call and speak up, because I think the more people that do it, the more people that the more that maybe government will do or maybe more people, things will start happening. Change can happen if you speak up. 100%, and I'm glad you called this morning. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, there you go. Right, let's go to line three. Larry, you're on the air. Yeah, Patty, uh, I'd like to know uh, what happened to Alex Nook? He never played the last three or four games, and he didn't see his shirt. I got a friend of mine looked in the computers and everything, and that you can't seem seem to find out what happened to him, right? He was one of the best hockey players on the Colorado Avalanche, and he gives you a couple of goals and winning goals. I like to know what happened to him. Yeah, he finished the season twelfth uh, in rookie scoring in the NHL. He had, I think, thirty three points, a uh, couple of assists in the second last game of the season. Uh, I'm sure he is extremely disappointed, uh, as am I. But Alex has simply been a healthy scratch. Is that very yeah. I can see why he could be a healthy stretch boy that is because he was know. getting all the goals and doing everything for heaven and he was winning goals and everything, right? Yeah, he had a good season and uh, I watched him play many, many times and he's got a great feel for the game. He's uh, yeah. works hard, he's a good skater, he knows how to get open, he certainly knows how to score. Mm-hmm. So I'm surprised he got scratched. He's probably quite surprised himself, but how do you draw back into the lineup now? I mean, the Avalanche are flying. Four straight wins over Nashville, putting up seven goals a night. So I don't know what's going to happen, but I fingers crossed he gets back in there. He was trying to understand me. He was doing so good. He's one of the best players on the team. I just, you know, I, I, I got friends looking at computers and everything. No one seems to know anything about him, right? Yeah, I hear you. Strange, you know, if he's not, he's not playing, you know. But we also have to remember he's a rookie on one of the best teams in the league, extremely yeah. uh, deep roster. So I hope he gets back in because I've known Alex. I met Alex the day he was born. I live on, we yeah. live on the same street. Our boys yeah. play together, and Very I'm thrilled deep. for him. But I really hope to see him out there. Oh, I can't wait to see him. You know, he was by seems because I got other friends of mine checked everything. They can't see no change to point out what happened to him. Yeah, nothing and happened. I can't see him being a healthy scratch and like that, right? But he is, though. That's actually, unfortunately, what happened. Oh, boy, that's unreal. Yeah, it's not Okay, good. Patty, thank you for the answer. I appreciate your time, Larry. All the okay, best. Okay, Patty, thank yeah. you. Bye. Right, bye-bye. Yeah, it's really disappointing, isn't it? <laughs> it really, truly is. Our two lads had tremendous seasons. And, of course, Dawson Mercer, the only member of the New Jersey Devils to play in all 82 games. They get knocked out. He gets the nod to play for Canada at the upcoming Worlds. It'll be the third straight season he gets to play for his country, two World Juniors, followed by a Senior Men's World Championship. And Alex, you know, I don't imagine he's listening to the show, (laughs) but chin up. And I know he will. He's a tremendous young man on top of being a tremendous hockey player. So let's hope he can draw back in ASAP. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, time to speak with you. Don't go away. (laughs) 
Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Clyde, you're on the air. Yes, good morning. Patty from the beautiful Beyond Peninsula and all this land, Labrador. Beautiful place where we live in if, uh, we only had a few politicians and that, that uh, answer to the key when somebody says uh, something's not right, like the five cents on the come-by-chance uh, refinery keeping that warm mode. Okay. Yeah, well, that shouldn't be on there, right? I mean, uh, they're down there now. Uh, but the, the, the five cents, yeah, just for clarity, the five cents wasn't for keeping the facility in a warm model. The warm idle money came directly from that federal government pot of money for the oil and gas industry. So I think it was about 14 or $16 million. So the five cents is for distribution, for imported gasoline. And that five cents goes directly to Silver Peak, which curiously also continues to hold a minority stake at Come By Chance, which is now called, although no one will ever use this word, it's the Brea Renewable Fuels. <laughs> so that's where the five cents goes. So I guess it's another cover-up, Jabber. What does that mean? That means that I guess they sneaked it in there for to do that, and uh, this company comes in there and going to start the jet fuel stuff, and uh, we're still paying it. But it has nothing to do with the refinery's operations. It has. It's about the fact. Well, I'm not making a justification because I think I think it should go away because I shouldn't have to be carrying Silver Peak's business. Is no. the five cents is for Silver Peak, who is importing and part of the distribution chain that's where the five cents is the, the warm idle monies wasn't that five cents and i don't think any of this was actually done under the cover of darkness it was actually done right in front of our face but we had very little say in it i mean there was a tuesday where north atlantic refining limited uh, said publicly that they need a higher adjustment to the price of fuels to cover what is now the importation cost. And then the uh, Dan McTeague and others told us, that, I can't remember the exact number, but gas is going up $0.03. Cents. The next day, on Thursday, went up $0.08. Cents. And that's where the $0.05 cents first became apparent. And as far as we can tell, it's not going away. Okay, I think I understand now the confusion there. What it was, when it was they refined their own, uh, and was getting it from down there, they were refining it. So uh, it wouldn't cost them so much to do it. Now that uh, there's no refining going on, it come by chance to five cents went out. That's pretty much it. Now, of course, we didn't get a big lot of distillates uh, for local consumption from come by chance, but we got some, you know, and that included propane, included gasoline, uh, bunker C. So there was certainly work done at come by chance that was uh, the eventual product was consumed here. And, you know, I still have people telling me that it was a waste of time and money for the government to keeping. Uh, the combo chance facility in warm idle mode but it kind of worked you know it's not what it once was it's not going to do the amount of production that it once did and it's moved off into you're absolutely right it's a biofuel uh, a biofuel facility now so using what is it corn oil animal fat uh, use cooking oil to produce a couple of things including jet fuels that's absolutely right 
and yes, diesel. Well, Petty's, the way I look at it is uh, I, I would like for it to be the way it was. I'm all for jabs. I'm having phone this open line for years and years about that kind of stuff. And uh, I'm all for jabs and things that work. But uh, sometimes it don't seem like it works right for uh, for the common Joe. You know what I mean? Well, how did this one not work out? No, I. How did this uh, particular issue not work out? Just curious of your thoughts. No, but like I say, for to put all that money into that, and now there's going to be list jobs and stuff. I mean, we always end up losing the bit. You understand what I'm saying there? Well, it's just a different application for the refinery. So I think it was, oh, well, anyway, represented by the United Steel Workers, it was maybe 300, 335, 345, and now there's a bare minimum of 200 full-time jobs out at the facility as it is today. But I don't know how people view it, but those 200 jobs – is way better than zero jobs. I yeah. I was actually surprised that anyone bought it, to be honest with you. No, it was a lot better than no jobs at all, Patty. You're right there. And uh, the way it's going now, the uh, rate against our all anyway. So uh, it was probably eventually going to happen anyway. You know what I mean? They're, they're right against doing the – they're still protesting yesterday. They they ignored down in, uh, down in your way, so – you know, that's, that's right against the all anyway right now. So I guess we're lucky that they came in and got to create a few jobs, you know. I think so. And plus, I think that move towards these biofuels is, I mean, it's a growing part of the industry. And, you know, I, I once again, I was a little bit surprised that anybody bought it. So, I mean, that changed hands so many times since it was first built. It's almost mind-boggling how often and frequently that was sold. So... Whether it was going to be now, one of the issues that I don't think gets enough attention is the environmental liabilities of which we're on the hook. For certainly, yeah. what it w- was when it was an oil refinery. Now there's some different adjustments and caveats inside this new contract as a biofuel operation. But there is some environmental liability out there that you and me and the rest of the folks listening to the show and everyone else in the province who was unfortunately not listening <laughs> is going to be paying for. I uh, appreciate the time, Clyde. Anything else you want to say? Yes, just the public liability, public uh, utility board. Uh, I don't know what's going on with that and the price of gas and everything. I mean, we're all uh, dumbfounded. I think this going up and down like a yo-yo, and uh, more up than down lately. And uh, uh, that apparently that's not working. And uh, hopefully uh, they can get something stabilized on that and not go up and down the two or three times a week sometimes in that race. It's been ridiculous over two dollars a liter. I think it's two fourteen or something there. Uh, hopefully uh, this will stabilize. I know the rush is cut off there. That's what's doing it. But uh, hopefully down the road something will sort of straighten up and stabilize a bit so we know what's going on, right? Yeah, well, man, that interruption formula is all the rage here in the last couple of months. And where it ends, I have no earthly idea. But it's two se- it was 217.3, I think, the gas station I drove by on my way to work this morning, which is a unbelievably whopping big number to have to pay. Uh, yeah, I, I think someone made a fascinating point here. It's one thing for amendments to the Act so that we can look at exactly what goes on at the PUB, and they're going to have to clearly demonstrate their work and public hearings on the price of fuels. That's all great. But as one gentleman pointed out, Boyd, he said, just because we understand the recipe doesn't make the product taste any better. He's 100% right. So the ultimate question is whether or not regulated price of gasoline works for me, works for you. And I think we're going to understand it a lot clearer. So I think that's a good first step that the minister, uh, Minister Studley in this case, has said the amendments will be made to the act. And so, uh, But I don't think it's the last step. Uh, Clyde, appreciate the time. Yeah, well, uh, you be safe, my Patty, and hope for the best for everything. Get a few jobs happening, but, and I'm hoping now that uh, Ginch is going to start up there again pretty soon. So, uh, 
You have a good day, Anna. You too, Clyde. All the best. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, so Argentia, a lot of that will be reliant on Synovus. And, of course, Synovus bought Husky, or they merged, or however people want to couch it, and West White Rose. Remember, again, when the war model money went to come by chance, there was also, I believe, the number was $45 million, went out keep some of that project and the pros- prospect for it to be picked back up. It's 60% complete, so don't know where it stands. But it's just another one of those frustrating issues regarding the profits of some of the big players. Synovus just reported a first quarter massive big increase in profits. Huge. At the exact same time, when there's federal tax subsidies out there for uh, different approaches to business to do more with carbon capture and storage, 50 to 60% subsidized by the government, and Synovus' CEO says, not enough. Not enough. <sighs> boy, oh boy, it was never going to be enough for the oil companies anyway, is it? So with the $45 million in and in Synovus' AGM and some of the uh, commentary they put forward on paper and otherwise, no real focus on Newfoundland Labrador offshore. None. So the future of the West World's extension, pardon me, I should use the word extension in that, still in limbo as far as we can tell. I mean, fingers crossed they complete it because we're not talking about, it's not the, the same conversation as Beta Nord. And the project's 60% complete. You know, sometimes sunk cost is a fallacy, but on this front, I don't know. Now let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, tons of time to speak with you. Don't go away. You can Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number one, say good morning to the PC member for Conception Bay East, Bell Island. He's the leader of the official opposition in the House of Assembly. That's David Brazel. Good morning, David. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and again, thank you for this opportunity. I wanted to get on and talk about the thousands of emails and calls we're getting from the citizens of Newfoundland Labrador about the cost of living, uh, the impact particularly the cost of fuels are having on people. And while we're having these discussions, we're in the House of Assembly now, you know, debating legislation, and one of the things that we're debating now is the carbon tax, another tax that will be added to the people of Newfoundland Labrador to already compound the uh, crisis that they're facing with cost of living. So I just want to let the people know that we were, you know, our colleagues in the House of Assembly last night, particularly the, the opposition side, uh, were relentless. We went right till the limit we could till 12 o'clock last night debating the carbon tax, outlining that people in Newfoundland and Labrador cannot afford another tax. They're already taxed to death. There's an impact here on their well-being financially uh, and mentally and on the economy as part of the process. We made it very clear, very supportive of us taking a stand on doing our part for the environment, us in Newfoundland and Labrador taking a stand and finding ways that we can improve the environment that we all live in, and ensure that the next generation and the future generations are taken care of. But we also have to take a stand to ensure that this generation and future generations are taken care of financially. And right now, imposing another tax at this point absolutely makes no sense. We've recommended things to do, put it off for a period of time, 
or take the monies that they're going to gain from that, directly invest it in other programs that offset the cost of living for people. If it's a home heat rebate, if it's stop the sugar tax, if it's looking at the cuts to, for the cost of fuels, if it's across the board uh, taxation cut for the people in Newfoundland and Labrador. Right now, We've been inundated, and we know you're getting it on your show also from people who are really feeling the crunch here. They're having to make decisions between medications, food, even determining whether or not they're going to stay employed because they can't afford uh, to travel to do that, and whether or not they're going to stay in this province. So, you know, we've been out. We're going to keep debating all day and tonight to ensure that government comes up with a solution that addresses the need. If they're going to tax people then that money should be uh, find a way to go back to the people in Newfoundland and Labrador and address the particular issues, which is the crisis right now, financial for the cost of living, particularly for our most vulnerable, but it's affecting everybody across the board. But are you talking about two cents? We're talking about the initial two cents that goes automatically. Don't forget now, Patty, this will go up to 30 cents by 2030. Add in all the other taxation increases that are happening. Add in all the other challenges that people are going to have. And this will all be passed on, obviously, because there's a carbon tax that's on fuels, to the, uh, the suppliers uh, and the supply chain itself to the consumer. So we're, we're seeing a trend here. We're in a crisis as it is. We're saying there has to be alternatives. Either delay it. Uh, and put it off on a time when we're, we're more equipped to be able to do it when the world is more stable or Newfoundland and Labrador uh, has a process in play that's going to work for the people. Or the monies you're going to generate, let's outline where you're going to put that now to address the particular needs that people have immediately as we face them on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, it, it's, it is two cents that we're talking about this go-around and how long this particular crisis at the pumps and at our home heating tanks lasts, I have no earthly idea. But specifically on carbon tax, does this make it policy-related or political? Because I'm not so sure there's much wiggle room available in our relationship, our bilateral agreement with the federal government on carbon tax versus straight-up focusing on the Silver Peak 5 cents or the 14.5 cents of provincial tax or applying the HST before you apply the carbon tax and the provincial tax. Those things that are more uh, mechanisms seem like ways we can maybe uh, change the water on the beans. But carbon tax, can we even do it without renegotiating a deal? Well, there are some particular nuances as part of the deal that could be used to offset the costing there. But particularly here, even if while we're still negotiating that, if the government couldn't commit to the monies that they're going to generate from the carbon tax that's coming out of the pockets of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians and the business community here, that that would be allocated directly in the programs that go back directly to Newfoundlanders and Labradorians to offset the cost of fuel, the cost of products, the cost of living. And there are things we're saying. There's, there's no outline plan here to say you're going to tax somebody. When they've said uh, unequivocally there's no new taxes in their budget, but this is a tax that now goes into general account. Let's show how the people in Newfoundland and Labrador who are under a crisis right now are going to be the benefactors of that tax right now. This will do very little to uh, you know, improve our environment. Is that? There are other mechanisms to improve the environment through education and you know, working with industry and finding ways to do that. This is about the increase in taxation and the impact it's going to have on people's lives on a day-to-day basis. There has to be a process. We've outlined recommendations. We're asking for a dialogue and a commitment that they're going to do something to help people when it comes to this extra money they're going to start raising in the next few days. I, I know, you know, the pushback, and someone yelled at me a couple of days ago that I was always saying, boy, if they do away with a revenue stream, they'll get it somewhere else, which is actually factually true, whether or not be boring or otherwise. But, yeah, and I know that the, the Tories or the NDP or the Liberals don't care what I think about these things, but if I was making a proposal about immediate savings, you know, someone says put more money in people's pockets, well, I think save the money at point of sale is probably a different way to look at it. If you simply applied HST on the cost of the product, 
plus the 10 cent federal excise tax, which has been in place since 1995, and apply HST then. Then provincial tax, then carbon tax, you'd be saving 15% on 25 cents, which would add up to appreciable savings over the course of a quarter or a year. Even something as fundamental as that, as opposed to trying to figure out how you can use 7.25 cents out of 14.5 and try to pretend that that's going to add up to a big lot of savings. Simply rejig the structure of how we tax the bloody fuel well, it's, ab- it's absolutely something government can do, as opposed to try to figure out some cockeyed scheme about uh, price point savings. Let's just change the structure, and then all of a sudden, savings are manifest themselves. And yes, they'll get the revenue somewhere else, but that's not what people care about today. They care about savings. No, and, and I agree 100%. And we've made proposals here around how the, the, the evaluation on the taxation and how it's accumulated together that would make it more streamlined. And you're right. You wouldn't be spending time and energy trying to develop a program to make sure that every citizen gets back their fair share. We agree. It would be based on if people spend money, they'll save money. We've given all kinds of alternatives. People like yourself have done it. We've heard it from economists. We've heard it from the general public here. But we don't seem to be getting the support in the House. And that's why last night, you know, f- five more hours in the House of Assembly. We're going to continue it today to come up with solutions that are reflective and easily implemented, and everybody would understand where the direct savings is, and it would have an impact on them being able to sustain a quality of life until we get through this ultimate crisis that we're facing. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to it. And, you know, so this is a cost of living issue. And again, people get quite cross when I try to make distinctions here. Inflation is related to cost of living but they're not the same thing so when we try to chip away at inflationary pressures you know and the thought was well we give people more money well that's actually not going to help at all it's probably going to have the exact opposite outcome because we've got too much money chasing too few goods that's really what's happening now i know there's lots of contributing factors and i'm not going to bother going down the list but on this one if we're simply going to talk about fuels in the home heating business, we can have a means test for a rebate. We've long understood how that works, and that's easy enough to achieve. All we have to do is have a relationship with CRA, know exactly what your net family income is, and we can pick a number and apply a rebate. Uh, at the pumps, it's impossible to do a means test. Virtually impossible, anyway, because what are we going to do, you know, carry around our T4s uh, to see who gets a rebate, you know, or, or, or a yay card or something? But just restructure the tax, and I think we get... Something that is palpable for government and something that is meaningful for the public. I'll give you the last word, Dave, before we go to the break. Yeah, well, you're, you're speaking to the choir there because we've made these proposals. We've had this dialogue. Our finance critic has talked about that. All of our colleagues have talked about it. We've taken in research from the economists here to look at the pro- process and protocols that could be used. But it's going on deaf ears here. And every time we get in and get in debate, we hear excuses why they can't do it. Our argument here is they're a government. We're willing to support what needs to be done. Let's find solutions that work for the people of this province. Uh, last one, this kind of related to energy. I think I read in the news story regarding the uh, the appointment of this 12-person panel to look at 2041. This is something that your party supports. For me, my goodness, if we don't ha- have a better understanding and a clear understanding of what 2041 implies, then we're just creating another mess. 100% supported. Matter of fact, uh, a couple of years ago, we called. We would have liked to have it then, but now it's started. Uh, the people on it, very skilled and very qualified. Uh, I outlined yesterday with the media that we would do whatever it takes. If it means in the House of Assembly supporting what the, the government initiative is on this and what the committee uh, does, 
The issue has to be that we need to find a way that the Newfoundlanders and Labradorians become the benefactors of our investment, a bad deal that was done years ago, rectify that so that we now have control over the extra uh, projects that we will have in hydroelectric power and that Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are the benefactors here. So 100% support it. We're hoping we can move this along and that this becomes the template for the negotiations so that we have no problems being partners with Hydro-Quebec as long as Newfoundland and Labrador gets its fair share, which it didn't in 1969. Yeah, <laughs> some pretty difficult lessons have been learned, of course. And uh, last word that I'll offer is, look, I get why people think Quebec is the boogeyman. I, I totally understand. And Hydro-Quebec is not an honest broker, as far as I can tell. But whether we like it or loathe it, they've got to be dealt with. And, so and, and we were taking advantage of the 1969 for a multitude of reasons. Uh, we want to ensure this committee will ensure that, that that doesn't happen again. And we get back to show them we're open for business. But again, open for business that the partners come in are coming in fairly and understand that we own the asset and we're the ones who gonna, should benefit the most from it. Even if that means sell it? No, not at all. It's too valuable right now. We're in an environment where hydroelectric power is going to be the staple for uh, ever and a day. Let's use it. Let's generate the billions that Quebec got out of it. Let's get our fair share back. That would put us on solid ground. Would get us into the hydroelectric uh, energy business again and let us then determine what best works for the people of Newfoundland and Labrador. Show we're open for partnerships as long as it's a fair and equitable partnership that all benefit from uh, having those agreements in play and moving that product to market. Appreciate the time, Dave. Take care, Patty. You too. Bye-bye. It's David Brasley. He's the PC member for Exception B. Swell Island and the leader of the official opposition. Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, we're looking forward to speaking with you. No matter what the topic, it's up to you, and we'll talk right after this. The Workday winds down with Greg Smith in the drive. Get up to speed on the day's events and current traffic, weather, and community updates each weekday afternoon on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line two. Randy, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. Hi. I want to know uh, when is Shave for the Brave and where it's going to be located at. <laughs> well, I'll have to have a peek here at Young Adult Cancer Canada's website because, of course, Jeff Eaton and his team are the crew that do the Shave for the Brave annually, of which I participated once, and my young fellow Jack has done it many times. Let's see here. Da, 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 da. Now, it's different times in different parts of the, of the province, but let me see if I can find something for you. Because I've had my hair cut for about a year, and it's really long. And a lot of people in my family died with cancer. Okay. I want to give back. Well, good for you. It's an excellent program. Young Adult Cancer Canada has uh, done a lot of work. They filled the gap where there was lots of supports for people dealing with the cancer diagnosis, yeah. but, of course, young adults were kind of left out. Let's see here. Okay. Uh, it depends on where you are. Uh, well, I guess I'm in Kilbride. You're in Kilbride, so you're looking for something in and around town. Let's see. Okay. Well, I go up towards the village all the time, too, right? Say what? I go through the village all the time, too. You go to the village, yeah. Well, they've done it out there. I know that much for sure. Uh, shave for the shave week uh, was April fourth through the tenth was the official one. But I'm going to give you a contact number, and you can call uh, Young Adult Cancer Canada directly to see how they can accommodate you. How's that? Uh, hold on, I'll just put paper. Okay. All right. Uh, five seven nine. Five seven nine. Seven three two five. Seven, three, two, five. Okay. That's the one. How long's your hair, Randy? Well, 
I guess whistles from guys going down the street. <laughs> Say that again, pardon? <laughs> I guess whistles from guys going down the street. <laughs> Listen, good luck with it and raise a few bucks while you're at it to uh, donate your hair. Uh, and if your hair is long enough, you can actually donate it to be made into a wig. I don't know how long it is, but anyway, give well, the folks a, a call and see. Down by my shoulders, anyway. Oh, there you go. Nothing wrong with that. Is it party? Is it a uh, business in the front, party in the back? Lying in the back and a little bit short in the front, but get the whole thing down good. Would you call it a mullet? I'm calling. Won't come there. <laughs> Thanks for this, Randy. Good luck. Okay, me buddy. All the best. Bye bye. Okay, bye bye. Uh, yeah, Schaefer the Brave. I mean, it's pretty good. The retreats and things that Young Adult Cancer Canada do have been extremely important. There was lots of support groups for, for instance, pediatric oncology, pediatric patients who are dealing with cancer, the diagnosis and the treatment. And there was plenty of other resources out there, say, for instance, for older adults. But young adults, it is such a, a strange time of life anyway, right? Graduating from post-secondary, possibly, maybe beginning your family. And there was very little out there to support the young adults. And Young Adult Cancer Canada has really filled that gap. Jeff Eaton, top-notch. Tons of energy, cancer survivor himself, and he's put these programs in place, of course, with all the partners that they've brought on board and the staff that works at Young Adult Cancer Canada. So that's one that I have a soft spot for. And as I mentioned, I think Jack did it what, maybe five times and raised a significant amount of money. And he and I did it together one night. <laughs> as a matter of fact, we did it at mile one during the intermission of a, uh, I guess it was a Caps game at the time. But anyway, that was uh, quite the memorable experience that's for sure so any comments that are made about a party that people support generally get some pretty intense reaction fair enough so any comments that uh, brian made about the conservative party uh, leadership debate he said he quite enjoyed the one that he tuned in and watched last night i did watch a bit of it and i made some comment i'm not 100 percent sure exactly what i said but i said you know there's a difference between emotions and policy and certain candidates are really leaning on the emotional issues. Some are leaning more on the policy issues. But I think we've got ourselves in a really funny place where if we have leadership candidates and, you know, we're talking about federal politics here and all of this leaning stuff on wokeism and cultural wars and cancel culture and all that stuff, uh, is it really even something that, for starters, even, is it even real? I mean, some of what's been applied to labeling someone as woke is kind of a bit bizarre, to be honest. And the cancel culture business, you know, being held accountable for your stance publicly, your comments publicly, is kind of the way things have always worked. And for uh, a party that's straight up leaning on the free market system, you know, capitalism, when a company does X, Y, or Z, if they're held to account by their potential customers or patrons with their dollars, that's nothing has ever changed there, right? That's the way the world has worked for as long as I've been around anyway. So that's my thoughts on that, is that if we're going to have big national debates on wokeism, okay, let's say they settle whatever they b believe wokeism might be. What does that mean for the day-to-day -day lives of Canadians? Because if we get caught up and we focus in on the culture wars, we're going to get absolutely nowhere in a hurry. Absolutely nowhere. So if we're talking about the big and the real issues of the day, even something as fundamental as the cost of living and inflationary controls and job opportunities and the level of taxation and whatever transition might look like and corporate subsidies and progressive taxes, I mean, if we talk about those things, we'll probably do okay. 
But if we get just completely and solely focused on culture wars, I don't know. Like, just imagine, there's this one particular person who blasts me with uh, upwards of 10 emails every single morning and comes at me about the pronoun stuff. You know, something that is minor as someone would prefer to have one pronoun or another used when speaking with them or about them, as if that's some sort of massive intrusion into anybody's life or asking a big deal of someone. Like, I, I mean, I don't know what everyone's pronouns, pronoun choices are, nor have I ever declared anything to do with my own pronouns. I mean, I don't think about those things much. But if people who have a concern of theirs, okay, fine. But, you know, this person tells me that the whole pronoun thing has divided the country. Well, that's because you've allowed it to. That's because you wanted to. Because at the end of the day, it's not very much of a big deal, if it's a deal at all. Like, what impacts one person? If it doesn't have a direct impact on your life or upset the apple cart, then I don't even know what we're even talking about anymore. You know. And again, I will say that the issue surrounding uh, the vaccine mandate, and I think that's the one last thing that has so-called crippled people's freedom, you know, it, it is it is time to have that conversation because it's an important one. Will I take it in before the break or will I get it right now? We should take a break? Yeah, okay. So Lynn Moore just joined us in the queue. Important discussions and a lot to broach with Lynn when we come back from this break. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your requests to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. And welcome back to the program. As many as 11 women came forward to lawyer Lynn Moore to allege they've been assaulted by a member of law enforcement, the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary. Now eight women are willing to proceed with a civil tra- a civil case in this matter. Join us on line number two is Lynn Moore. Good morning, Lynn. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Uh, so you were just in court waiting for a case to be called regarding your want for changes to the Jane Doe laws. Explain to people what exactly you're trying to achieve. Oh, well, anytime you bring an action in court, you, you are named as the, the person bringing the action, and the person that you're suing is, is also named. In criminal cases, when there's a case of sexual assault, the uh, complainant, the person making the complaint, the complainant um, is identified by initials in the uh, charging document, and the Crown Prosecutor at the first appearance will ask the court for an order banning publication of any information which would identify the complainant. And that order is granted because the criminal code has uh, legislation in it which allows for the court to do that. Um, provincially, um, when we bring civil suits, we're governed by the law of Newfoundland and Labrador, and there is no law in Newfoundland and Labrador uh, which allows a court to do that. There's no legislation, so we have to rely on, on the case law, uh, which says that the court needs evidence to show that there is harm to the person suing if their name is published. And in order to get that evidence, uh, my clients have to be assessed by an um, expert who can provide an opinion to 
uh, the court on the impacts of being a sexual assault survivor and having your name made public uh, for the, the particular plaintiff. So anytime someone decides that they want to pursue a claim, they are aware that they're going to have to talk about their, their harm, um, talk about what's happened to them. They, they know that. Um, my concern with this is that this is a step that could be easily remedied by the passing of provincial legislation saying, as the criminal code says, that where a judge thinks it's in the interest of justice to ban publication of the plaintiff's name, that they can do so. Um, that would take one one step out of the process whereby uh, people have to uh, tell their story. And the, the telling of the story is it's in and of itself is trauma-inducing. Um, so I've been trying for years to get the government to pass legislation which would remove that one trauma-inducing step out of the, the process. So um, I've been, uh, you know, I've, I've spoken to previous ministers about this. I've spoken to um, political handlers, and um, I've also spoken publicly about it at different forums on ways that we could change the whole law of sexual assault, the whole justice system to make things easier for people who want to make complaints. And generally, when I when I make the, the case and I explain it, people are receptive. Um, they think it's a good idea, but nothing happens. And so in this case, with the, the women that have told me about what happened to them at the hands of the police officers, I approached the government and said, well, let's look at this a different way. We don't have the legislation, but maybe we could go to court together and agree that as a, a matter of common sense that it's harmful to people to have their identities made um, known and the government said no, they would not do that with me. So when we we make these applications um, to get the order, we usually do it ex parte without the other side being there, and that's what I was doing this morning. Uh, an, another uh, person who was uh, made a uh, complaint of um, childhood sexual assault. Um, this case, uh, the the person who sexually assaulted her was actually convicted um, when she was still a young woman, and uh, she was in in foster care, and now she's seeking compensation because the government didn't properly protect her when she was a child and in this um, violent um, foster home. Is there any rationale offered as to why it's different in criminal matters versus civil matters insofar as protecting the identity? No, there, no one has uh, suggested any rationale. And in fact, the government, I think in 2019, passed legislation making it um, easy to, not easy, but making it p permissible to sue for the sharing of intimate images. And in that legislation, um, they did include a provision identical to the provision in the criminal code saying that people who sue for intimate images will have their identity protected. So those people who want to sue don't have to go through the re-traumatizing interview process to lay the evidentiary basis for their uh, Jane Doe. Um, but uh, my clients who are suing for um, sexual abuse um, and the, the clients, you know, of, of, of everyone, um, that's, uh, as long as that legislative gap is there, um, then they have to go through this process. You know, because the, the assessment to see whether or not it would cause them any psychological harm Help us understand, because I've never been in the courtroom for any of these types of proceedings. We've seen some commentary, we've seen some video and what have you, but what? how different would it be in a civil proceeding versus a criminal proceeding regarding how the 
the plaintiffs are questioned or what their role would be in the proceedings, or is there any? Oh, there's a huge difference in in how people are uh, treated in in criminal cases. Um, the person who is um, charged, you know, they are possibly looking at a jail sentence, and that makes the the cross examination uh, or the possibility of resolving the matter without the need for evidence by way of a guilty plea very unlikely. People. Um, generally want to, um, you know, they want to fight these things and they want to fight them hard. And uh, the other thing is in in a criminal case, the Crown has to prove the absence of consent. And in a civil case, once the sexual activity has been established uh, by the plaintiff, then the onus shifts to the defendant to prove that there was consent and that's a big difference uh, in terms of uh, who has the responsibility of, of proving things. And especially in these particular cases with the, the women who have come forward to us about the RNC, because um, all of these women were under the influence. And instead of the women having to prove that they were not consenting, the defendant has to prove that uh, the officers took all reasonable steps to determine that these uh, women were consenting, which they can't do because the women weren't consenting. In some some of the cases, they weren't capable of consenting. Um, in other cases, um, th- they simply uh, did not consent. They they have uh, they were under the influence, but they specifically remember at no time um, agreeing to the the sexual activity. So. Um, the other thing about about civil cases and how it's different for for people who are bringing the case is that generally speaking um you you have to sue someone who has enough money to pay uh, out substantial compensation because these kinds of harms have lifelong effects it affects your ability to get an education it affects your ability to maintain employment so we're looking at you know pretty significant numbers and um when you sue an institution as opposed to the perpetrator um there's a lot less heat in it um for the institution and uh, it's just a. It, it's. It's. I'm not saying it's an easy process, but it is easier than the the criminal process. So that would be getting at, like, the culture of operations. You say you've identified, or the women have identified, three RNC officers. One apparently uh, very quickly retired after some of these stories came to pass. Will they be named specifically, or and if not, why not? Well, <clears throat> um, one. Um, <clears throat> Um, one will be named, um, and the other two uh, will not be named. And the reason for that is that uh, uh, the women were um, under the influence. It was a long time ago. They're not 100% certain who the officers were, so we don't want to, to name people that people aren't 100% certain of. And for the civil case, it, it what matters is that they were police officers and that they were abusing their position of trust. The actual individual identity um, of the uh, officers is not critical to um, proving um, that the government is responsible for the actions of those officers. When the suit is brought forward, does it name not only the RNC but the provincial government? Well, the RNC is not really a suable entity on its own, so you have to sue the government, Her Majesty and Right of Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, I appreciate the time, and, I'm, I'm, and if this is an inappropriate or unfair question, just let me know. Um, 
I know they're proceeding with a, a, a civil suit at this moment in time, and we do know it's up to the women individually whether or not they'd like to pursue criminal matters. Is any of that in play to the best of your knowledge? None of the women I've spoken to are interested in making criminal complaints. I appreciate the time this morning. Lynn, would you like to say anything else while we have you? No, thank you for, very much for your interest. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Lynn. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's Lynn Moore, representing eight women who've alleged uh, sexual assault at the hands of members of the RNC. Boy, oh boy. You know, and sometimes when we talk about this, it's some people hear it as an all-out assault on law enforcement, or the RNC in this case. But I think if you speak with members of the force who are forthright, well-trained, professional, decent, community-minded people, they would love nothing more for some of these black marks and the black clouds hanging over their head to go away, right? Because you know what happens here. When we talk about something as an institution, it doesn't really stand to reason that every single police officer would have that same mindset. So when you do away, and I hate to say bad apple stuff because that kind of oversimplifies it as well, doesn't it? But when we have a better understanding of what happened, who allowed it to happen, who knew what when, then the, the best of the professionals working on our behalf We'll have, an e- we'll have an easier road to do their job properly. This is a big deal. This is really a big deal. You know, it's not that long ago where it was just, it's not to say that it's not an honorable profession because I think it is, but, you know, the relationship between the community and the police and the neighborhood policing, community policing, the respect immediately held for a police officer has in some form eroded over the years. Some of it's based on what we see, reality, things that have actually happened that we know. Some of it may indeed seep into our psyche from south of the border. But that position of trust that uh, law enforcement officers have is something that's important. And you can't have one individual betray that, that relationship because it makes, us bad for, it makes it bad for all of us, right? So this is an important piece of uh, legal work being done by Lynn Moore and the eight women who are joining forces in this particular civil suit. Anyway, whoa. Uh, Let's take a break. When we come back, still plenty of time to speak with you. If you'd like to lighten it up and tell us some good news from your region, your part of the province, let's do exactly that after this. Don't go away. Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's try line number two. Good morning, Sean. You're on the air. Morning, Patrick. Great day out there. Can't wait to get out there. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm just on my way in from Bellevue. It's a beautiful drive. Patrick, uh, two things. I was just listening to Lynn Moore there, and the question came to my mind was uh, how prevalent is this kind of thing across the country and other police forces? Like, are we uh, like any different? Uh, are we hearing much about that kind of thing on the scale that we hear it in our community? I don't really know, to be honest. Uh, but I think there's an awful lot of understanding and discussion about people in positions of authority, whether it be hierarchical authority inside, for instance, the military, and or people in positions of power, whether that be teachers or executives or law enforcement or politicians up and down the line. I think these are pretty general conversations, and I don't think any province is immune to it. I wouldn't think so, but I just wondered the prevalence of it. You know, like is it any? Like it seems to me that we've had a lot of uh, a lot of this kind of thing happening. You know, on the clergy side, and, and like you just said, through people of, of uh, trustworthiness, and uh, 
it just reminds me of many times, like when we were kids, uh, young, growing up, and and uh, you know, going to St. Bonds and other schools. We used to hear bits and pieces, but now it's all out there. And uh, just wondering if it's uh, any different across the country, like the scale of it. So that that that's one question, and maybe maybe Lynn Moore would know that on the next conversation. But it is an interesting uh, angle to it. The second thing is. You know, really concerns me because I'm in the woods a lot. Like, I like to do trails and hikes and all that. I'm seeing a lot of glass around in the woods, beer bottles left there, uh, other things that uh, that act as magnifying glasses. Uh, and uh, I'm wondering whether that would have caused the, the, the fire yesterday out around uh, Harbor, Maine, and, and Brigus areas because, it, you know, the sun was pretty bright, pretty strong yesterday. And, of course, you know, people leaving their garbage around the woods, it really makes Thanks for uh, you know an accident like that or an incident like that to happen pretty easily, and I just want to bring this to the attention of your listeners that you know next time they decide to leave something in the woods, like uh, like like a glass item or anything, as far as that goes, it could end up causing this kind of result. Quite possibly, uh, fire chiefs will tell you that, especially early on in the fire season, which officially is supposed to be understood at May May the first in this province that the most of the fires are caused by man. So whether that be the old cigarette butt and or pieces of glass that have been left behind is certainly quite possible, Sean. I don't think they've determined the cause of those two particular fires, which are still only uh, 20% contained. So it's not like the story is uh, done, whether it be out of Brigus or Harbour, Maine. But it's interesting you bring it up. And you say, you know, about uh, the clergy and what have you and abuse at the hands of the clergy. We're no different than anywhere else. In fact, I mean... The stories are rampant. There was just another one out of the state of Pennsylvania that is just extraordinary. And I think people know what's gone on there and, you know, who's to blame and the shuffling around of these of these evil members of the clergy from one unknowing parish, uh, parish to another is just ridiculous. And law enforcement, I don't know the prevalence. I don't know if I could even try to figure it out. But while you were speaking, I just threw a quick Google up there. Right off the bat, two Quebec police officers charged with sexual assault. Saskatoon police officer charged with sexual assault. So I guess it does indeed happen elsewhere, which stands to reason. And and also, you know, when when these these positions of authority are being passed out to people, I often wonder, you know, how much are we asking or or digging into their backgrounds or their tendencies? But like you know, these days, uh, anytime you go looking for a position, uh, there's often a, some kind of a uh, a long long test. Like, like I use the word test, but it's more an aptitude and, and tendencies of a person, you know, and, and the way they're written um, and put together uh, often uh, can reveal certain things about individuals. Now, I, I'd be surprised if the military doesn't use those. I'd be surprised if police forces don't, and especially clergy and other positions of authority. But if they aren't, then they should. Well, I don't know about the clergy, but I know inside of... Law enforcement in particular, absolutely, psychological evaluation is critically important and is being done. Is there enough? Is, is it intensive enough? Is it given the priority that it requires enough? I don't know, but they absolutely do it. Because we're, we're not just talking about you get out in a squad car and you have the ability to pull someone over for speeding. You're armed. I mean, so obviously you have to know the potential for the person who might be unstable enough to become an actual danger to society because they're in that position of authority is very real. And we've seen it and many examples of it in the recent past, and I would imagine 
over the decades. You know, it's not that long ago, it's in my lifetime, where the RNC didn't have any guns. Not on them anyway, some firearms right. in, in the trunk and what have you, but right. not even carrying. So I, I would imagine it took a different f- uh, psychological evaluation then than it does today. But of course that's important. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. There are some people out there who are simply not fit to be in law enforcement. A hundred percent. Well, you know, I, I know some people have got in there and I wouldn't want to have to come up against them. <laughs> you know, I know you know some too. You just shake your head, you know, like what's he doing in the force or she doing in the force. So and of course we're seeing this coming out across the across North America around the world. I mean like here's this woman uh, the um, uh, gonna receive the the officer of the year at this week, actually, she's supposed to receive it down in the U.S., and she and she takes this uh, this uh, prisoner with her, and they take off. And you know, it's like you just can't. I mean, how do you judge that? She's been a member of the force for 20 plus years, whatever it was, and uh, and who would ever see it coming? So it's pretty hard to determine what someone's psychological, uh, uh, I guess, tendencies are. You know, some can hide it pretty good, but I think the more we put into that evaluation the better and i don't mean just just before they go in the force i mean continually so that some things can can rear its ugly head as people get in the force later there's family issues and other issues go on when you're in the force and some people don't realize that they even have these things going on until they're actually in a force or in a position of authority and then all of a sudden it starts to raise this ugly head so i just thought i'd bring it up to you yeah, I, I'm not so sure I know that story. Is this the one where there's a video of her simply walking the prisoner out through the door? Yes, and, uh, and then when they, uh, when, uh, when they did the evaluation of her, she's been a, an exemplary employee officer for her entire career, and she's going to get the Officer of the Year Award this week. So... Yeah, I think there's something different between being a potential danger because you've got uh, an inflated sense of self-importance and a sidearm versus falling in love with a prisoner. But I get the point. And apparently this guy, convicted murderer, if I'm not mistaken, I heard the story was he's something like six foot nine and has been a long, dangerous past and all the rest of it. So that's a weird story. It really is. But, you know, it doesn't go too far away from what can happen. And not long ago we we had a... Uh, fellow Muran, remember Shannon Muran was up for murdering Mindy Tran out in BC, and uh, and uh, and he got uh, uh, he was let go uh, because one of the jurors caused a hung jury, and then of course she ended up living with him down here in Newfoundland. So you know, how, however, a person with that kind of a of a background and up on serious serious charges can can talk over a juror or a or an exemplary. Uh, Peace officer is just shocking to me, but it happens. Yeah, that it does. Uh, Sean, I appreciate the time this morning. Thanks a lot. Okay, thank you, Patrick. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine there's a lot of very difficult lessons that have been learned. But the the psychological evaluation has got to be, obviously, a critically important component to evaluating a potential cadet for whatever law enforcement agency. Absolutely. And... Whether things are the same or worse or better or whatever, uh, this province versus other provinces, I suppose that's something that would be helpful to understand. But the fact of the matter is, you know, ensuring that we shine a bright light on it, no disinfectant quite like sunlight, and know exactly what was going on and who was involved and the culture that allowed it to continue and whether or not those in positions of authority inside the RNC in this case, 
were aware of what was happening. And some reports are quite clear that some of these things had been reported. And what that meant for the officer alleged to have behaved in a criminal in a criminal matter, I don't really know. But there are pretty important questions. Okay, it's the final break of the morning. When we come back, still a segment of the show to speak with you about anything that's on your mind. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Well, of course, in the envelope of just how expensive things are, you know, when you get news from whatever level of government, it's a dead giveaway as to whether or not it's good news or bad news. And the bad news comes, generally speaking, with the late in the week, the Friday afternoon, late afternoon dump of information. That's exactly what happened on the, at 5 p.m. on April 14th. So the federal government for five years has been working towards trying to lower the cost of medications, right? Making adjustments to the patented medicines regulations. They've abandoned it. And so consequently, nothing's going to change. We pay a lot for pharmaceuticals in this country, a ton. It was about 30 years ago that, based on real pressures coming from the United States and the pharmaceutical lobby, which is all-powerful in that country, Canada extended drug patent protection to 20 years. So that is the massive difference between ensuring that we've got a fair and level and equitable playing field because the generic equivalents cost so much less. But here now, the Trudeau government with the five-year fight to try to deal with it, has just abandoned it. So here's what some of the comments coming from the federal health minister uh, when he was asked about a week after about the reforms. He said, uh, Jean-Yves Duclos, of course, he said that the industry's needs for research, development, and production capacity. So, of course, the same old fight takes place all the time. He had tried to take on the biggest industries, including the pharmaceutical industry, and it is, well, if you change our profitability, then we're just going to leave. We're not going to produce, and here we are, you know, trying to scramble for all sorts of therapeutics and vaccines and the like, and the drug companies say, well, if you force our hand, we'll leave. There'll be less product in your country, zero manufacturing done in your country. So they hold an extremely big stick. But that's where, if we're going to have to try to skirt around the edges of the cost of medications with any patent protections, then we're going to fight against a behemoth that is extremely powerful. As opposed to what I think is quite clear every time there's a, in particular, a Senate report on this issue, and the most recent one come from Dr. Eric Hoskins as the lead, to evaluate what it would look like, what it would cost, and what would be the implications of adding universal pharmacare to our healthcare delivery model. It comes with upfront cash. Of course it does. And there would have to be all sorts of controls about, you know, not letting business off the hook, which currently provides some coverage to their employees. It would have to absolutely have a relationship with the country's doctors about the appropriate level of prescribing different drugs. But if we're going to try to take on the companies, obviously it's proven to be a losing battle on this front. 
the federal government gave up on it. So you're talking about cost. How many Canadians, one of the largest, most costly items in their day-to-day realities is the cost to fill a prescription. So 5 p.m. on April the 14th on the eve of the Easter holiday, bang, they walked away. Let's go to line number one. Chris, you're on the air. Hey, Terry, how are you? I'm okay this morning, thanks. How about you? I, I'm going to tell you a little story now that happened at a garden party. I'm sure you can remember some of the garden parties you and your parents attended in St. Mary's Bay. 100%. But anyway, I was at the airport. This is about 20 years ago. And this man named Kevin, he came over to me and he said, where are you from? And I told him. He said, I got a little story for you. He said, I attended a garden party. He said, down there he said, one time. And he said, they gave us a ticket for a door prize. So he said, what do you think the door prize was? Well, I said, I suppose a bottle of liquor, but I said, a few beer or something like that. No, he said. He said, I was waiting for the people, he said, to bring in the door prize. He said, next thing he said, he said, two fellas come with two tie rubbers. And he said, with a black face ram. He said, that was the door prize. <laughs> so I said to him, I said, what did you do with the ram? He said, he sold it after. But Kevin, uh, it was his name, and uh, he had a prominent business in here in St. John. So I just wanted to tell you guys that for, for a laugh. I'm always up for a laugh. Yes, but, but Patty, I, I want to speak uh, about the fish plant out there in uh, St. Mary's. Uh, I'm calling on uh, the Prime Minister of Canada to issue a license to the community, not to an individual, because the competition today... They don't want anybody to get an, an extra license because they'll be taking away some of their quotas for, for, from uh, the fishermen. So if they issue the, the license to the community and then it had to stay in the community, there'll be no qualms with some of the big guys around. But uh, I know that uh, I spoke to Martin Sullivan after the sale of FPI, and he remembers the conversation that I had with him. I said to him, I said, I hope you guys will help out the inshore fish plants. And he said to me, he said, he'll do what he can. So I'm calling on the boys. They have a half a dozen crab licenses. I'm sure him or Blaine can lend one of them license to that plant and see if they can get it in operation until the prime minister issues the license. Well, it wouldn't be the prime minister. It wouldn't be the prime minister anyway, because that is thankfully a provincial matter. So... We had a good conversation with Reg Anstey earlier, and he was pretty forthright. Didn't tell us all of the the goings on inside the proceedings or what the final decisions were. But we need the province to retain some of those controls, right? Including where fish processing licenses are approved and who gets them and the reasons why. I, I thought, you know, between Mr. Anstey talking about uh, the regional concerns and the concentration, and the the fact that the uh, the proponent here has. Uh, access to four million pounds of crab and boats ready to go and all the rest of it. So, you know, I, I get where you're coming from, but I really do want that decision to be kept here provincially. Just imagine if we always had to go up along cap in hand looking for approval for a processing license or anything else. But I get the point in full. What part of the province are you calling from, Chris? I'm calling from St. Charles, Paddy. Okay. But uh, like I said, once we uh, joined Confederation, I think uh, the Premiership didn't have as much say in the province on certain issues, especially regarding uh, the federal fisheries. So uh, I'm, not, I'm not 100% sure if the Premier can do anything about this unless he, he strikes the counterparts in the federal government. Uh, well, the Premier or the Minister of Fisheries, whether it be a rubber stamp coming from recommendations from uh, Mr. Anstey's 
Fish Processing Licensing Board or not is, I guess, up for debate as well. Chris, you've had the last word. Appreciate the time this morning. All right, Patty. Thank you. Take good care of yourself. All right. Bye-bye. All right, uh, yeah, that's going to get some additional traction. I don't know how the protests went out in St. Mary's today regarding the want for the region to see that fish plant open and the 150, 180, maybe 200 jobs that can be created there. They've got a pretty strong case, and they make a pretty forceful argument, and we'll see if anything changes. And, you know, in regard to the science, I asked them a question, which is obviously going to be quite difficult to answer, but they, they kicked it down the road a year to see what the science looked like. And in the last two years... The total allowable catch on snow crab has increased by 46%, 30% on the average in the last year alone. The price remains at $7.60 a pound, same as it was last year. But the value of landed snow crab this year is going to be in the neighborhood of $1 billion. That's madness, a billion dollars. So I asked Mr. Anstey what the science needs to look like regarding recruitment and pre-recruitment numbers of crab and whether or not we're going to see another increase in total allowable catch. Because part of their mandate is not to take away business from already established businesses, but when it can be absorbed because of an increase and access to the product, then maybe that's part of the decision-making. All right. Good show today. Appreciate all the support the program gets from the callers, listeners, emailers, tweeters. You're all right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Fonz King, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.